This morning, we'll be reading a few passages in connection with our text. Our text will be Malachi 3, the verses 1 to 3. And so we'll be reading that first of all, after which we'll read from John chapter 1, the verses 29 to 34, and then 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. Malachi 3, the verses 1 to 3. And you'll be able to find that on page 1106 of your pew Bible. The word of God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of right, in righteousness. Next we'll turn to the Gospel of John, reading John chapter 1, the verses 29 to 34. John the Baptist, the messenger of God, the one who cried in the wilderness, make straight away for the Lord, has been proclaiming the coming kingdom. He's been preparing the way. And now we see who he's preparing the way for. John 1, verse 29 to 34. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Next we'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, the verses 23. Oh yeah, there we go. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says here, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So far the word of God. Our text for this morning will be Malachi 3, the verses 1 to 3, as we already have read it. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, two weeks ago as we 
gathered together, we read this very same passage. And we saw how the Lord had already declared 400 years prior to the coming of Christ that he would send the one whom he had named my messenger to the people of God. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In Luke 1 verses 17 and following, we discovered that this messenger was John the Baptist coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he came to prepare the way of the Lord, turning the people back to the Lord in repentance and in faith. And he really did prepare the way. Crowds came to hear him preach, and leaders sent people to ask him if he was the Messiah. No, he said, but someone is coming. There is one coming whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie. On reading our passage, Malachi 3, some, as they have been moving through the passage, they've thought that the messenger of the covenant in whom they delight is the name, just another name for the one who is my messenger. And this would make John the Baptist that messenger. But John, by his actions, makes it clear that this is not the case. He himself did not preach the message of the covenant. Rather, he preached a message of repentance, turning the people of Israel back to their roots, back to their God. He, on the other hand, was preparing the way for one who would come. And today we're going to take some time to focus on that second messenger, the messenger of the covenant, And we'll look at who he is and what he does under the following theme and points. The messenger of the covenant. We'll see, first of all, what God's covenant promise was. Second, God's covenant law. Third, God's new covenant. Fourth, a messenger with authority. And finally, our covenant delight. So we hear of him speaking of the messenger of the covenant. And... If you're unfamiliar with this kind of language, you might be asking yourself, who is this messenger of the covenant? In fact, what's a covenant in the first place? The answer to this question, if you've grown up in reform circles, is likely one that you're familiar with. But you probably realize that the depth of the treasures and the delight of the covenant is not something that too many other people know of. Unfortunately, knowing that can sometimes lead us to lessen its value rather than seeing it for the rich delight that it is. But the covenant is truly something to delight in. The covenant was the bedrock of theology for the Jews. It was what gave them their reason to be, their purpose, their right to the land of Israel, their standing before God. God's claim on their children, and so much more. But where did this covenant originate? To understand where the roots of the covenant for the nation of Israel is, we need to take a step back to their forefather Abraham. Abraham was the spiritual father of the nation of Israel. And from him came his son Isaac, and then his grandson Jacob, who was the father of those who would 
eventually become the leaders and the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it was to Abraham that God gave this first promise. We can find that promise in Genesis 17, verse 7, where the Lord says, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. This was God laying claim to his people and calling them to respond in faith, to respond by worshiping him. For the Old Testament people of God, God sealed this promise with a covenant ceremony. A number of animals were cut in half, and then the halves were separated so that a path ran right between them. And God himself symbolically passed between the halves. This was to say, let the same being cut in half happen to me if I break my promise. It was something that happened more often in covenant ceremonies. So while it might seem strange to us, this kind of cutting of animals and and walking through, it wasn't strange for them in the ancient world. They would have understood what was going on here. They would have understood that God was binding himself to his people. So in summary, the covenant was a commitment. And just as in a marriage covenant where the man and the woman get to call each other by the new names of husband and wife, so too do we find God later giving Israel his new covenant name in Exodus 3, Yahweh which we can find here in our passage with the capital letters, Lord. This is to say, I am. This reminds the people of God's commitment to his covenant. God's promises, his faithfulness. But there was a problem. God's people themselves were unfaithful. And this brings us to our second point. After Abraham, God gave his chosen people a series of laws, the laws of the covenant. He said, you are my people, and because you are my people, I have called you out of the world to live differently than the world. You can see these laws elaborated on in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. The laws of the people of Israel were to be a reflection of their need for God. And to highlight this, God deliberately centered a whole series of laws around the point of becoming ceremonially ceremonially unclean. To be unclean was to be dirty, but on a non-physical level, you could become unclean from touching a dead body or coming into contact with bodily fluids, or eating the wrong animal, or coming into contact with a person who was unclean. Uncleanness was something that was contagious. The laws of Israel worked in such a way that everybody would eventually be touched by uncleanness at one point or another. Because uncleanness was contagious, it was inescapable. For the people of Israel, this was a reminder of the contagion of sin. Everyone sinned, and everyone was eventually affected either by their own sins or the sins of those around them. You might not feel particularly sinful yourself, 
as a Jew in ancient Israel. But the impossibility of remaining forever ceremonially clean was a reminder that you were sinful before God. You did have to come before God time and time again for that purification. But it was also a reminder that despite the fact that you fell into sin time and time again, God was still your God. In the New Testament, you saw that many of the leaders of Israel had missed this point. They saw it not as something symbolic, reminding them of their constant need for cleansing, nor did they see the need for something greater that was coming. But instead, the the way that they lived showed that they saw it as a series of steps that they needed to make in order to win God's approval. They tried to put extra laws up around the law to make it absolutely sure that you wouldn't break any of those laws. They went to extreme lengths to obey the law to the very letter. We read that some of them even went as far as to strain out the milk that they poured into their cups just in case a gnat had fallen into the milk and would... would be drunk by them and therefore make them unclean. Now, while this desire not to break the law might be good, they had ruined it by letting their zeal for the law lift themselves up above those who were around them. Jesus showed to them during his time on earth that they were beginning to see their obedience to the law as making them righteous, making them more righteous, making them more deserving of God's blessings than everyone else. And we ourselves fall into that trap today too sometimes, don't we? By making obedience to God the goal, being so focused on our own right standing through what we do, that we get distracted and we begin to think more highly of ourselves than those who are around us. The problem is that we today, when we fall into this trap, or the Jews in the Old Testament, when they took that view, they missed the fact that the whole point of the law was to show that really none of us truly deserves God's blessings any more than anyone else. As Malachi himself puts it, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. Praise God that it all comes down to grace. You see, the point of the covenant was not and never would be, I will reward you if you deserve it. It was that God himself would provide a way out despite how undeserving we are. If you lived in rebellion to God's law, then you became a covenant breaker and all of the curses of God's covenant would rain down on you. And you can read Deuteronomy 28 sometime to get a taste for the horror that is contained in these curses. It was truly terrifying. But... If you turn to him, he would cleanse you. 
If you believed that he would set things right, you would go to the priests. You would follow the steps for cleansing. You would seek to be clean before the face of God. You would seek forgiveness before the face of God. And then you would be clean. Now, obviously, you're wanting to become clean and follow the steps to be clean. Wasn't you deserving anything? After all, those who became unclean in the first place deserved whatever consequences came as a result of that. But the fact that God had put in place steps by which you could become clean was a symbol to the people and a reminder to the people that you could come to God and he would make things right. You couldn't make things right, but he could. And we see that today as well. God is a God who calls you to himself through his word. Not because you are right with him, but in order to make you right with him. Charles Spurgeon has a beautiful quote about God's covenant saying this, From the beginning to the end, it is all of grace. They that see the covenant runs in this way, sorry, they see that the covenant runs in this way. Not, I will if you will, but I will and you shall. Not, I will reward if you deserve, but I will forgive even if you sin. Not, I will cleanse you if you are clean, but I will cleanse if you are filthy. Not, I will keep if you assist, but I will bring you back even if you be lost. I will surely save you and I will preserve you to the end. And this brings us to our third point. So, if God's covenant in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were both about grace, you might be thinking, what is the difference between us and them? Well, if you remember the description of the covenant ceremony, the cutting of the animals in half, representing what would happen to one of the covenant breakers, the party of the covenant that broke it, you'll notice that there's something unique about the way the ceremony unfolded. Abraham, although he was a party to the covenant, he did not go through. God alone walked between the pieces of the animals. And this showed the inability of man himself to bear the weight of that covenant. Israelites were expected to hold to the holiness of God. But if they tried to keep the law as their way to salvation, instead of lean on the sacrifices that God provided, their inability to keep the law was quickly exposed. If they tried to hold to the covenant on their own terms, on the basis of their own righteousness, it would be like they chose to walk beside God between those slaughtered animals the day that the covenant was instituted. They took it upon themselves, in their minds, if they tried to hold to the covenant in their own strength, to walk alongside God through those two animal halves. 
And if they did put themselves in this place, they would be deserving of that condemnation that comes on covenant breakers. This is what the sacrifices of the Old Testament were a recognition of. It was a sign that I, who have have slaughtered this animal and put it on the altar, ought to be there myself for having committed sin against the Most High God. But these sacrifices in themselves would never be enough. They were mere shadows. What the people in the Old Covenant were leaning on was mere shadows pointing to a reality that would be coming. After all, could we be sure we still enjoy God's favor in the covenant? Mere animals being slaughtered could only be a picture of how we ought to be under God's wrath. How then can we stand secure in the knowledge that we will be God's people and He will be our God? Well, that's what the new covenant seals for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who stepped up to the plate on our behalf. As the only perfect man, he has stepped up. And he has walked between the two halves of the animals, taking upon himself that that challenge which would be If you do not hold the covenant, the consequences will fall upon you. But he fulfilled the obligations of that covenant perfectly. And look, he didn't stop there. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So what does that mean? It means that Having lived the perfect life as fully man, Christ then took our debt, our sins and our shortcomings, our imperfections on himself. And that means he took the punishment that ought to be ours on himself as well. Though innocent himself, he underwent suffering and death, being held up as a curse. He underwent that which ought to have been the lot of those who do break God's covenant laws. Jesus Christ, in coming, preached a new covenant. He preached a better covenant, a covenant rooted in his payment for sins, a covenant which stood secure. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, he said, holding up the wine at the Last Supper. The cup of the Lord's Supper and the bread that comes with it is a sign that we know that we are purified before God in Him. It's a sign that we can take hold of by faith. By it, we can assure ourselves that because of Christ, we do stand as righteous. And so those who are joined to Him in a living faith, those who are joined in communion with Him as as symbolized by the eating of the Lord's Supper bread and the drinking of the Lord's Supper wine, they stand before God as if they've done everything perfectly. And this brings us to our fourth point. Christ bore the covenant curse on our behalf. 
This is the message that he brings us. Every Sunday again we hear that those who hold to him in faith are washed clean by their sins and by his blood, washed clean of their sins by his blood and are given a new life in him. And so they're able to read this passage that we find in Malachi. They're able to read these questions. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And they're able to recognize that no one can. But Jesus has come. And he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and as silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Christ himself purifies his people by offering himself up in their place. And so he turns our offering into an offering of righteousness. As messenger, this is what he proclaims. But is there more to it than that? Is there a a greater benefit that we can gain from the messenger, our Lord? The benefit that we have of salvation through Jesus Christ is the greatest benefit that we could ask for. But there is more. It's been pointed out that Christ is like an ambassador, having brought a message from heaven to earth. And in the same way, we recognize that many of us are messengers and ambassadors to the world as well. But Christ is more than your average ambassador. In some cases, ambassadors were given the complete authority of the state behind them. They were given the authority to direct the power of the nation that they represented. They were granted the right to declare war or peace on behalf of the nation as a whole. Charles Spurgeon says again, Now Christ comes as the covenant ambassador of God. Let him do what he will. God is with him. Let him promise what he may. God ratifies it. Let him speak what he will to our souls. His word shall certainly be fulfilled. Now do you not rejoice in Christ in this office? He has said to us, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest, says the eternal Father, as he confirms Jesus' word. Go in peace, that your sins, which are many, are forgiven you. These words that Jesus says when he comes proclaiming the covenant, and these words that he says throughout the Gospels time and time again, promising rest for his people, they aren't just words. They have power. They have all of the authority of heaven behind them. What peace we can get from this. As the hymn writer declared, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. He came to earth, not just as heaven's ambassador, not just as the one who is bringing a message, but as the purifier of his people, as the one who proclaims promises to them and who has the power and the authority to fulfill those promises. He is the one in whom we delight, which brings us to our final point. 
the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This Malachi proclaims the people of God. The messenger of the covenant in whom we delight is coming. But how do we show our delight? We experience the joy of living in covenant with God. A covenant in which everything is met in Christ. Through a living faith, we're joined to Christ and everything that he did becomes ours. Knowing that he fulfilled the covenant perfectly on our behalf, it's only natural to want to respond with joy. But how do we go about that? There are a few ways in which we can do this, and most of them are centered around our faith and its response. Our catechism has a beautiful summary of what our faith is, saying, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. It's uh, resting on the revelation of God's word from start to finish. It's, it's recognizing this. It's knowing this to be true. But it's also a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace. Only for the sake of Christ's merits. So it's knowing what God has given us, but it's also believing that it applies to me. But how does this connect to delighting in the messenger of the covenant? What better way to delight in the messenger of the covenant than to dig into those truths on which our faith is founded? To dig into his word to deeply mine the quarry of God's word and discover the treasures and the rich ores that are stored within it. What better way to delight in God than to drink deeply from this fountain, to taste and see that the Lord is good every day, time and time again. What better way is there to delight in God's word than to spend time to delight in God's covenant messenger than to spend time in the message that he proclaims. Another way we can do this is eagerly running into his presence. As a child leaves what he's playing with and he runs to his father's arms when, he's, when he comes home from work shouting, Daddy! We can cultivate that same attitude as we run into God's presence ourselves especially as we gather for worship on Sunday. Leaving our daily playthings behind, our work and our other distractions, and praying for the Holy Spirit, we cultivate in ourselves a desire to run to Him and rejoice in the rich pleasures of His promises. The promises that are proclaimed by ministers off of this pulpit, Sunday after Sunday. Finally, we can live in, those, in the joy of those promises. Striving to live, not only being happy ourselves, not only delighting in the messenger of the covenant and the message that he brings ourselves, but shining the light of that inner joy to those who are around you. That's not always the easiest to do. 
But if you can help but make every effort to let your light shine before men, that they can see you and glorify your Father in heaven in any and every situation, holding to the treasures that you store up in heaven, no matter how few days you have left on earth, holding to the fact that he never abandons you or shames you, even if those around you threaten to do exactly that, holding to the fact that he went through the deepest loneliness even being forsaken by his Father in heaven, so that you might never be alone. Delighting in that. Faith is a living faith, you see. It's one that responds and wants to respond with delight. Remind yourselves of these promises time and time again. And as you take hold of them, let your faith lead you to fix your eyes on the one in whom you delight, the messenger of the covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ, and delight yourself in him. Amen.